the regulation is coming. And so for those people in the space who say like, no, you know, we're sticking with the cypherpunk ethos, just buck all regulation. That's not particularly realistic. Uh, and so I think engaging with regulators is and policymakers is really important because if we don't, the banks will, and then this will become fintech. And that takes away some of the interest and fun and promise of what this technology can really bring. All right, everyone, I have a big smile on my face as we kick this episode off. Two of my favorite people, actually three, I'll include Santi as one of my favorite people. So we got Santi joining us and then two of my favorite people and two of the brightest people in our entire industry, Jake Dravinsky, uh, head of policy at the Blockchain Association, and then Rebecca Reddig, uh, GC at the Ave Companies. Welcome to the show, Jake and Rebecca. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, really, I think an important episode, should be a fun episode, but also an important episode. Uh, I, I feel like there are two statements that are just these like tried and true statements since all of us got into crypto that everyone says, A, the institutions are coming and B, the regulators are coming. This is going to get more regulated. And I feel like the last month is just uh, one of those like, oh my God, moments where it's like, oh wow, the regulators have arrived. And so I'm curious, uh, Re Rebecca, maybe I'd throw this first one to you just starting really broadly. Like, what do you think is almost the state of the nation for, for regulation in crypto? And uh, I feel like the space has been getting more and more regulated, but did this tornado cash moment take you by surprise? Um, so two parts to that. Uh, in terms of the answer, you're right that regulation is coming. I think this summer was um, a big moment for that with the implementation of Mika in Europe, which is the markets and crypto asset regulation. And it is really intended to be uh, a comprehensive set of regulations in the EU to regulate really centralized crypto actors. Uh, and then there's a second piece coming in Europe. People are calling it Mika too, where they're studying DeFi. They're going to put out a a big report and also some recommendations for regulation, although that's coming six, nine months, 12 months down the road. Um, the same types of things are happening in other jurisdictions as well. Uh, the UK right now is doing big calls for evidence for both centralized and DeFi, centralized crypto and DeFi. Uh, and a lot is going on in the US as we've seen coming out, right? The various bills that have come out, which I know Jake has a lot of intimate knowledge about, um, and some discussions of studies and the president's executive order. There's a lot of engagement with stakeholders um, and you know a lot of the agencies that were commissioned by the EO. But as for Tornado Cash, um, I think that falls outside of at least what I feel is the sort of course that regulation has been running down to both centralized and DeFi. Um, it's very unprecedented. I don't think we've ever seen a piece of software be sanctioned in the past. Uh, and I think that um, either there's a misunderstanding of how Tornado Cash worked against what Blender IO was, because OFAC, or the United States Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is part of the Treasury Department, did sanction Blender.io back in May. But Blender was a Bitcoin mixer. It was run by individuals, and there were centralized actors there. Tornado Cash is, especially in the DeFi world, highly decentralized, no admin key, no DAO that can actually even change the smart contracts themselves. Uh, and so I think um, in that respect, it's uh, a very different piece of regulation. Uh, and I don't even know if I'd call it that. Um, I know sanctions are a very powerful tool in the regulatory world, but definitely outside the scope of what I've seen so far. What do you think, Jake? Was this, was this like, to me, it felt like, I mean, it almost felt like you, like I was picturing a house when this happened you have a house and I felt like people, the regulators were almost like taking apart pieces of the house with like 
with taking out nails with a hammer and like they're kind of taking it apart kind of piece by piece and then they just brought in the wrecking ball and just like smashed the house and i was like oh my god like this is this feels overly drastic to me but uh, i'm also very biased i'm curious to get your take on this no i think that's fair and i i generally agree with with everything rebecca said which is also true in life i generally agree with everything that rebecca says so Mm. we'll see if we disagree with anything uh uh you know on this podcast but um, no, look, I think that's true. And I think the, the way to understand this in part is regulators and policymakers broadly are responsive to facts on the ground, right? They're responding to reality. And I think what we've seen over the last six to 12 months or so is, first of all, we saw an extraordinary speculative mania in the bull market, right? Things got pretty silly last year. And then we saw a pretty spectacular collapse of that sort of bull market in a way that was was not only volatile in the markets, but also caused real losses to U.S. retail investors. That's where regulators and policymakers start to get really concerned. We also saw hacks and you know other scams and frauds and uh, you know errors and things like this in the crypto ecosystem that not only resulted in losses to, to US retail but also resulted in profit for bad actors like the Lazarus group which is the hacking group in in North Korea and i think that's really how we have to understand the tornado cash sanctions uh, everything rebecca said about this being novel and in my view anyway an overreach of US sanctions authority all of that is true on the other hand if you put yourself in the shoes of folks at the Treasury Department, what they are seeing is North Korea, one of our our most serious foreign adversaries, and indeed a brutal dictatorial regime making over a billion dollars by hacking DeFi protocols and then laundering those funds through Tornado Cash. So I don't know that they are thinking about, you know, uh, bringing a wrecking ball to to the crypto ecosystem, broadly speaking. What they're thinking about is we want to stop these bad guys from abusing this technology. And I think that might be as far as they thought about this and didn't really think about those unintended or uncertain consequences that would come from sanctioning a decentralized protocol, right? An inanimate piece of software, as opposed to a person or entity, which is how sanctions typically work. Yeah. I guess for the folks listening, like, um, wouldn't it be more sensible to regulate the off-ramps? Because at some point you can use Tornado to try to, um, I guess, anonymize or like make it the, the funds that have been hacked. But at the end of the day, like you can Tornado produces a proof of the origin of those funds. Like, I'm not sure if regulators understand that, but I'm curious, You both of you are actively talking to regulators. One, just from a general understanding, how savvy are they about this technology? Um, and do they even take an interest? Or, or do they just take the approach of, like, as you said, uh, you know, Jake, um, do they care about actually learning about this technology or just kind of using a chainsaw to try to stop this thing that cannot be stopped, actually. I mean, I'll, I'll give you my answer just based on my interactions. I guess, I guess there's maybe two two things here. One is. Whenever we say they and we're referring to the government, we have to remember they is a very big category, right? It's very idiosyncratic. And there are different people in different places of government with different interests and also with different levels of understanding. I think when we when we talk specifically about the Treasury Department and the folks who are making decisions about anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism policy, I think these folks actually have a very strong understanding 
of, of how the technology works. I think the issue is sometimes they are subject to political pressure to make decisions that are not necessarily in line even with their own understanding of how the technology works. And that's a big open question in the Tornado Cash story, right? Was this a consequential shift of policy from OFAC where they are moving now to a new world where software is on the table permanently for sanctions? Or was this instead an, a, a moment where someone else in the federal government with political interests rather than policy interests said, we need to show that we're tough on North Korea. What are the options available to us? And this was one of the options that was viewed as being legally available. And the reason why, look, I'm speculating, I don't know exactly what the, the decision-making process was here, but one really important piece of information is the announcement about the sanctions came not from the people who focus on policy in OFAC, but rather from political appointees, from the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence in the Treasury Department. That's someone who is uh, chosen by the president and confirmed by the Senate, and also by Secretary Blinken at the State Department, not even at the Treasury Department. So it may be that this was more a political decision than a sort of sophisticated technological decision about how the, the you know ecosystem or the space should be regulated. Yeah. And I'll just add on to what Jake said. In terms of giving credit to, let's say, policymakers as opposed to regulators, the policymakers who are thinking about creating legislation right now are really deeply trying to understand and make sure that any legislation they create is compatible with the technology and the way it works. Uh, and I've seen that across the globe. Uh, both Blockchain Association, the DeFi Education Fund, and others uh, are really in there in many places, both in the US and around the world, educating policymakers and regulators. We do the same. Um, we do our own policy work to make sure that we're out there trying to, to educate about DeFi. And there's an interest. Uh, it, look, it's not as widespread yet as we'd all want it to be, but I think everybody is out there trying to do their best to educate. And um, I think it has slowed down in a positive way the snap um, reaction to wanting to regulate in the wake of what Jake said, um, you know, these crashes or other losses that have been sustained by, by investors. You know, as and just to go back to what Jake said, to the point about tornado cash, whether it's political or not, there was this real, there is this real sense of urgency about being um, tough on North Korea. And so I think they are looking for every tool in their toolbox to do that. But Santi, to go back to your original question, I do think the off ramps are the place to go when thinking about cracking down on North Korea. And one of the things I am hopeful happens is that these analytics companies may do tracing of the wallets out of Tornado Cash and to see which exchanges they're going to, if at all, to cash out into fiat. But I think as we know, North Korea has been, North Korea doesn't always use cash, right? They can do a lot of bartering in the dark web system, from what I understand, where ETH just may be accepted as ETH and they don't need to, you know, they've traded cigarettes for, you know, uranium right, in the past right. and things like that. So it also may be very difficult to crack down on some of the centralized offshore exchanges that they may be using. Yeah, because to me, it's always felt like if you're a regulator and I've had conversations with them, it's like, wouldn't you want the entire financial system and flow of funds to happen through open, transparent systems? Um, and you can use tools like chain analysis to crack down on on where the 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 on and off ramp happens. Yeah, absolutely. Go really hard on exchanges that need a KYC, everything that goes in and out, the same way that you should regulate banks and Deutsche Bank and Standard, you know, Standard Charter, all these banks wander, you know, have laundered money. Like humans can be corrupted, but nonetheless, like if you're a regulator, like this is like the perfect 
system to tax individuals to trace activity like you talk about like sanctions against russia like it's super hard to enforce these things oh but if you use programmable money then all of a sudden it becomes easier to enforce these sanctions and i i'm i don't know like it would seem like this is as you guys said a very political action not so much one that is uh, from a policy perspective really sensible um but i guess like what if, what's your how do you see this like what's next what is most at risk here um, on the whole tornado situation, um, and and where do you see this going? I mean, I don't think anything is going to be changed or rolled back. I think the tornado cash sanctions are going to remain. I am hopeful that OFAC will put out FAQs. There's a lot of push from industry um, about and giving draft FAQs to OFAC to consider to put out to give clarity on the dustings that happened shortly after the sanctions, whether there will be enforcement against those individuals or not. And I'm hopeful that they will also consider general licenses, which will allow people who've had money frozen in there legitimately now, right? U.S. persons who may have been, you know, putting their money through and take salaries. You know, people have put all sorts of types of funds through for legitimate financial privacy reasons. I'm hopeful that there will be a general license to allow those people to at least withdraw those funds and maybe some even further clarity um, from OFAC as well. I well, you know, agree with that. And I, I think uh, a lot of what Re- Rebecca described, I would call sort of the short term unintended consequences that we have to clarify. And, you know, Rebecca and I are both members of the board of the DeFi Education Fund. Uh, we're doing a ton to try to get some of that clarity, like she said, you know, applying for a general license or FAQs. There's also separately, though, the more long range systemic questions that that this action raises for us, right? And I think there's at least two that are really important. One is, where where is the line where OFAC will sanction the next decentralized protocol because they think it's being used too much by bad actors, right? In in this case, the numbers suggested that Tornado Cash was maybe thirty to forty percent uh, comprised of illicit, uh, you know, finance flowing through the protocol. That's a lot. It's still not a majority, but it's a very large number. The question is, what is the percentage where OFAC will sanction the next address, right? If you look at all of the DeFi protocols across, you know, the, the crypto world, uh, just like if you look at all the financial institutions in the traditional finance industry, the amount of illicit finance is not zero for any of them, right? There's some amount of illicit conduct. Where is that line? And I think we need a, an answer to that question. The second issue is, what do the sanctions that have already been imposed require for other systemic players in the crypto world? Particularly what I mean is validators on Ethereum, right? How are miners or validators? How are they going to comply with sanctions? Does this require censoring blocks? Does it require reorging the chain if the immediate you know, past block includes a sanctioned transaction? These are all questions I think we need to answer going forward. And to Jake's point, just to add a fine point on it, you know, the real question that I have for the miners and validators question is, uh, you're not supposed to provide what's called material assistance, right? And I think there's a lot of anonymizing technology that's out there now where potential validators on Ethereum may not even know what's in the what they're validating. And so the question is, can you be held liable for materially assisting a sanctioned transaction if you don't have any requisite knowledge? Um, so I do think, to Jake's point, some of that needs to be clarified as well. Um And I think that the other thing that those of us who are building in DeFi need to think about is what can we do proactively to work on educating OFAC and others uh, about how this technology works so we don't have another one of these situations. And the last piece of it is, 
Um, I hope that we become, and regulators also come to have a more nuanced understanding. So, you know, while there may have been 30 to 40% on tornado cash, it wasn't in the 0.1 ETH pool. You know, North Korea was not breaking up $14 million worth of hacked funds. And so there has been at least anecdotal discussion about a lot of the sanctioned funds go, or a lot of the illicit funds going through some of the larger pools. And so maybe sanctioning those pools rather than an entire protocol may have been appropriate. So I hope we also can work on having more nuanced understandings of how this all works as well. Let's dig into the protocol strategy because I'm really curious about that. I mean, how does, I, I, I think Jake, you said it right. Like where do they draw the line, right? Tornado cash, uh, even though I explicitly disagree with the actions, it doesn't actually impact the industry that much, I would say. But if they start sanctioning something like uh, capital USDC that flows through Maker, right, that impacts Dai, which impacts all of DeFi, right. So how, like, when you're when you're thinking about how protocols are are thinking about this, maybe Rebecca, I'd throw this to you. Um, how should folks be thinking about it? Like, do you do you? I I, I feel like it used to be decentralized to the community, like don't like get rid of all entities. And now it's like, oh, wait, shoot, maybe that's the wrong strategy. But I'm curious how, how, how folks should be thinking about this right now. Um, I think it goes to one of these core issues, which is if you're a DeFi software developer, where's the line? And Santi and I actually talked about this yesterday. Where's the line between the company and the protocol and the DAO? Uh, and there should be some transparency around that. So in our case, um, obviously, the Aave companies built and developed the Aave protocol. Uh, we put out, uh, you know, a V1, V2, V3, but we can't do anything with respect to any of those uh, without the DAO voting. And the DAO really does have complete control over the protocol now. The separate piece of it is there are front ends um, that are run typically by centralized actors. As of today, I'm not sure of any front end that you know has an ENS that's controlled by the DAO, but I hope that's coming because uh, I do think that there are pieces of that that will be beneficial just from you know a decentralized ethos perspective. Um, but the question is, everybody from a from a company side should be thinking, one, what's your involvement in the protocol and what kind of control do you have? So the question isn't any more custody when you're in DeFi, right? They're all non-custodial. And if they're not, then it's not DeFi. Um, but if you have some form of control over the protocol, and this is general, this is not with respect to the Aave companies because we don't have control over the protocol, um, what should you be doing? Should you be working with a blockchain analytics company to monitor, as you know, as Jake said, the amount of illicit funds coming through your protocol? And if so, what do you do? What type of actions do you need to take? Um, so you actually have to be thinking critically about the two questions of at what level of decentralization are you? And two, if you're not fully decentralized, what are your obligations to ensure that you're complying either with regulations or at least taking good faith steps to make sure you're aware of how your protocol is being used? I will say, and maybe we're going to get to this later, the biggest question that I get, and I think Jake gets it a lot too, is are any of these really decentralized? Like, is decentralization yeah. just a myth? So anytime I'm talking to, you know, regulators or policymakers, I really have to walk through what decentralization means and how you can gauge that because it's hard and somewhat nebulous. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a three-pronged definition of decentralization. Um, so it, it's three parts. So it's technological. Is your code open source? Um, you know, if, and is it deployed to a permissionless blockchain that's run by a variety of nodes? But I think the open source part is the most important. You want everyone to have the transparency as you were talking about Santi to see 
what's happening with the code, where it's coming from, sort of the clear rules of the road and an understanding of what's going to happen when they interact with the protocol. Governance, as we were talking about, do you have any form, do the original software developers have control over the protocol? Uh, and can they affect user funds? And then something I call like ecosystem, we can call it community. Um, but, you know, do you otherwise or does the community otherwise believe that the software developer is controlling or otherwise affecting your funds? Or is there a large decentralized system of actors who are contributing? You know, is Gauntlet doing risk analysis? Do you have Sertora making proposals to do audits or ongoing risk monitoring? Do you have separate developers who are contributing to the development? So th that's my definition of decentralization. I mean, I think that's a great definition. I think of it a bit more um, maybe from the practical perspective in terms of the goals of decentralization, which I think are to provide security and assurance to the users of a protocol that the protocol itself is going to be credibly neutral, right? In other words, that there is not a person or a small group of people who have the power to change the protocol or who could be compelled by any third party, you know, whether that's a nation state or someone else to make a change to the protocol. And I think that sort of gets us back to this question of um, how should builders be thinking about decentralizing you know, either layer ones or DeFi protocols. And to me, I think a big challenge here is um, there are protocols where you could imagine the government, you know, getting court orders and sending them to the largest governance holders who have the power to make any kind of change to the protocol, especially protocols that are proxy upgradable. And those people are going to be required to comply with that court order, right? That's a problem. So I think when we consider what could happen next, if there is a protocol that's under... Um, you know, the, the sort of control of governance token holders who are primarily located in the United States, who could be ordered by OFAC to make some change to the protocol, whether that's to shut down the protocol or to include some kind of KYC or to exclude certain addresses, right? I think that is an insufficient level of decentralization. And we should mm -hmm. be looking for ways to maybe ungovern some of these protocols, right? This is an idea that the reflexor folks talk about a lot, ungovernance. Maybe we have pushed the idea of governance a little bit far. Rebecca could disagree with me about this. Uh, and we should really be sort of working our way in the opposite direction and removing some of these elements of human discretion and control over these protocols. I was just on vacation. I just read the Cryptopians. And one of the questions that really struck me uh, that they were all asking themselves as they were building Ethereum was, uh, you know, what is going to happen if a nation state thinks that they can compel, uh, you know, Ethereum or people behind Ethereum to do something that we don't want to do. So it's just, I, it's an interesting read because so many of the issues that they were grappling with and they, when they were building Ethereum are things we still are grappling with today. Yeah, it's such a good point because I think we've been on this journey over the last two, three years around governance tokens because we haven't had regulatory clarity. And so you sort of try to dress it up or, you know, just say this is a pure governance token. It doesn't have any features of a security. It's just purely for voting. But that again, now we're faced on this idea that if you are governing and you have some sort of control, then they can target specific entities, whether it's a fund or a fund and or core developers that can effectively, if you sum that up, have greater than 51% governance power, i.e. they can change certain parts of the code and can have control over user assets and so I, I don't know, like, I feel like we're in this crux and I guess the question is, would you say that there, it is more important from a decentralization standpoint that the, the contracts are not upgradable or that 
contracts can be upgradable. It's just that the voting power is spread out across a credibly like decentralized set that it is really, really hard to twist an arm of a particular entity or entities that makes it kind of really hard to um, corrupt, if you will. I mean, I think the hallmark of true decentralization is censorship resistance uh, and how we get there is, I think, still part of our evolution. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there are there are potentials for real benefits with decentralized governance. I also think there are a lot of good potentials for the future of work with DAOs, um, but we're certainly not there yet. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, look, I think both are good. But I think that having contracts that are actually immutable is the ideal, right? That's sort of the principle that drives everything in this space. And I think that that is better, not just for regulatory reasons, but for, again, sort of the principles of the space um, than having just very broadly distributed governance powers, uh, you know, among holders in many different countries. And, and look, this comes out... Especially in the anti-money laundering context, and you know, you mentioned the securities laws. I'm not, I'm not saying any of this from a securities laws perspective. I think that's a totally separate bundle of of legal and regulatory issues. But when we hear anti-money laundering regulators talk about whether a DeFi protocol can be treated as a financial institution, they are looking at whether there is a group of people who can make decisions about how the protocol works. And it doesn't matter necessarily how distributed those people are to the anti-money laundering regulators who expect everybody in the world to simply operate like a bank because that's what they're used to. So I think from, again, from that regulatory perspective, it's better if we can say these protocols cannot be changed. That is the purpose of them. They are immutable. They are not the property of any person or persons, uh, rather than to just say, yeah, but all the voters are so dispersed around the world, it's just going to be too hard for us to make those changes. So sorry, nothing we can do about it. And the latter point that Jake is making is actually found in the Dow report too, where they actually say governance was, and it's so, when I've reread it a few times, I think it's so stark because they say governance was so decentralized that nobody could actually make an impact. And so the curators were the real people that they could hold liable along with Slocket um, to move forward. I, I think the other thing, and Jake sort of brought it back to this is, you know, we've started talking about decentralization so much as a regulatory panacea in some way, um, but it is an ethos thing, right? Like that is really why Bitcoin came into existence, right? Decentralization, censorship resistance, all of that stuff. And so I think to Jake's point, we need to stay true to that as well. Yeah. You guys have been around the space for a number of years um, and have, you know, joined these kind of organizations. There's been a lot of things that have gone wrong the last, you know, six months, you know, you have... Celsius, Voyager, um, Luna, Terra, um, anonymous founders gone like rugging and, and, and a lot of stuff. What has been, but at the same time, it's been, I, I feel like we've done a lot of progress over the last two years. Like regulators are across the world are thinking increasingly, as you said, Rebecca, understanding of this technology, I appreciate that it has a lot of like technological impact and innovation, but what has been like the most damaging out of all the things that have transpired most recently? to setting us back from a regulatory standpoint. People using the word DeFi when it's actually centralized crypto. <laughs> that's my that's my personal <laughs> part, right? Everyone thinks Celsius is DeFi. It's not everything. Everyone thought Terra and Anchor were DeFi. It wasn't. So I think from the DeFi perspective, um, I think that's been really damaging. Uh, and I think people also not acknowledging, as Jake and I have sort of been talking about, that they are real centralized crypto actors 
um, or centralized actors in a financial system who may have obligations um, has has hurt the long-term narrative that there are a lot of responsible actors in the space who are actually trying to build a new um a new system that has a lot of promise. We, I don't, I wouldn't say we've gotten there yet, but I think the people who have not acknowledged that there may be real obligations from a regulatory perspective, um, given what they've built, is has I think set us back. Jake may feel differently. But Jake, before you go, Rebecca, I'm I am curious if you could just clarify because this gets confused a lot. Like, can you just define DeFi and and make the distinction between DeFi and CFI just for for basic listeners out there and, and everyone probably sure. Understands. So CFI is relating to centralized crypto uh, and centralized finance. Those are things like centralized exchanges and the like, but it's really where there are actors who have control over other users' assets. So as you'd expect it in a traditional financial system, it's just with a different asset class, right? Crypto assets or digital assets. DeFi, and there are a number of hallmarks of DeFi and we can get into it, is where there are no real intermediaries. It goes back to the the definitions of decentralization that Jake and I were talking about, but where there's an immutable or a set of smart contracts that are self-executing and completely non-custodial, and you do not have a centralized actor who has control over it. But this is one of the reasons why I say you need to make sure the software is open source, right? People need to see where and how things are happening and understand that there's not a centralized actor somewhere. So if you can't figure out from the code, and let's put aside whether people read code or not, because I know that's a big issue. But if you can't see where something in the system is coming from, you have to know that there is a centralized actor somewhere that's making it happen. So, I mean, that's a that's a good point. And I, that also bleeds over into the securities context, because the SEC, especially Chair Gensler, seems to have this idea that there is no such thing as DeFi, that everything is decentralized in name only. And I think that's confusion introduced by by a misunderstanding around what DeFi even means. I guess my answer, if I had to give you just one answer, it would be three arrows capital. I mean, there's no comparison. The damage that three arrows has done, I, I think we still don't have a good sense of how much damage there really is, but it has been just unbelievable. And, and not just what three arrows did itself, but I mean, they really were uh, a systemically risky element of the crypto market. There's no way around that. And I think we have to admit that. And the fact that that was sort of allowed to happen, I mean, this gets to a point that Santi has been making for a number of weeks about self-policing, right? Our ability to sort of reveal some of these issues on our own. I think this, this really did show that there is some part of the crypto market, the centralized part of the crypto market, that does have the same types of systemic risks that we see in traditional finance. And that kind of stuff needs to be addressed. I, you know, I think if I were to give you sort of the top three, it would be three arrows um, Terra, just because, the, I mean, I don't have to explain to you guys how serious the Terra collapse was. Uh, and then the Ronin hack. I, I think we really underestimate that. And I think that, again, is the primary explanation for the tornado cash sanctions. North Korea stole $600 million, I think even more than that, in one fell swoop. That is a meaningful amount of money for a country that everyone else in the world is trying to stop from developing nuclear weapons. Like, this is a much more serious issue than just some people were speculating on fun tokens and lost some money. This is like a really serious geopolitical question. So I, those are my sort of top three. Yeah, definitely. I guess like transitioning a little bit, um, you know, there, there's been some commentary from folks like Brian Armstrong. He went on saying it on the Lex Friedman podcast. He thinks around like 50 to 60% of regulators, at least in DC, see like true innovation in crypto. Um, they just want to kind of understand it and regulate it sensibly. Um, do you, 
agree with that? Do you, um, and are there particular sectors where regulators are more focused on? And yeah, maybe we could start. There. I think I would, I think I would also add to that. Like, should is that who we should be catering to? Like, should we be catering to the the right? Reg- the regulators, right? So I, th- I think there's a question in- inside some protocols right now, which is like, do I cater to the U.S. regulators or do I cater to the world? Uh, and try to think about like, am I a global protocol or am I trying to basically confine my protocol and my product to a small group of U.S. regulators who doesn't understand what we do? So I'm just curious how you, how you think about approaching that. No, and, and- Jason, what, I, what I'm saying is like, the question is, I feel like most of the time people say, US regular, regulators don't understand this thing. But I think like I've actually, in my interactions, and this is like years back, like 2016, 17, I've actually felt that they're pretty knowledgeable, as Jake said, like, especially people that are not like maybe the public official, but like staff, I, I see, agencies, I see Treasury, yeah. CFTC, like they're actually really smart, like, like, and they know this stuff. They're actually maybe using this stuff. And I just want to make like I, that. That was my question to you guys, because I, I feel like most people just fought, especially now that like a regulators don't really care about this stuff, which I disagree with. But I'm curious to get your take. Uh, they definitely care, and I think um, yes, we should be considering you know how we can address their valid concerns using the technology. I think that's the point. Look, I think one of the the most exciting things from a regulatory perspective about crypto, and Rebecca and I have been talking about this for years, is that you can address risks that usually require coercive regulation to address in the traditional financial system just with the technology. I think self-custody is the best example of this. The entire body of money transmission laws in all 50 U.S. states is designed for the specific purpose of stopping some money transmitter who has custody of customer funds from running off with the money or from losing it in one way or another. And the technology that we've developed in crypto literally solves that problem. You don't need money transmission licensing to address custody risk if you can just eliminate the custody risk from the, the uh, you know, base of the technology. That's the kind of stuff I think we need to explain to regulators. But then again, there's going to be some other risks that still persist in crypto that the technology does not solve. Some of the secondary market regulatory issues, for example, we have not solved market manipulation in decentralized protocols. There may be some room for regulation to address that kind of issue. And frankly, none of us want to see pump and dump schemes or you know frauds and scams in crypto. So I think that's the key. We have to explain to regulators where we've solved the risks with the technology, where we haven't, and then work out some kind of compromise. And look, I, this last thing I'll say about this and then turn it over to Rebecca is like, we are not going to live in a world with this l- level of low regulation forever. Crypto is not unregulated. When, when people say it's a wild west, that's not true at all, right? There's a lot of regulations that do apply, but there will be more before crypto goes as mainstream and sort of takes over the financial system, as I think we all think it will, there will be more regulation before that happens. And it's incumbent on us not to, as Jason said, um, you know, ignore U.S. regulators and hope that we'll just find a gray market or a black market in other countries, and that's the future of crypto, but rather to try to work out something that honors the benefits of the technology, but also satisfies those valid concerns that regulators have. I agree completely with everything Jake said. You guys are going to have to work hard maybe by the end to find a question where Jake and I don't agree. But uh, I want to make a couple different distinctions that we're talking about, though. 
One is let's make a distinction between policymakers and regulators, right? There are regulatory agencies um, and there are different arms of those agencies who understand the technology in different ways, right? Innovation arms, so forward thinking, really understand, spend so much of their time in the past have possibly used the technology. Enforcement arms may feel differently uh, and see these bad acts and hacks and things like that and not get down to the nitty gritty, you know, at the basic level that the uh, innovation arms have been doing too. Then there are policymakers, right, who are writing legislation. So in the U.S., people in Congress, and there are different levels of understanding between different members of Congress, different, um, you know, the House Financial Services Committee does see crypto in their ambit. So does the Senate Banking Committee uh, and the Senate Ag Committee. But there are other, you know, other members of Congress, possibly on other committees who may not have as much knowledge because it just doesn't fall within what they do. So we need to make those distinctions clear. We also need to make uh, the distinctions clear between centralized, you know, CFI and DeFi, as you guys have done earlier, uh, and where the regulation is coming first. I think, as we've seen in Europe, they understand that regulating centralized crypto actors, including you know, payment stable coins uh, is an easier way to go. And I think we'll see a lot of that in the US too. But DeFi is not far behind. And the one message I wanted to give to, you know, people in this space is we aren't, we aren't unregulated now, completely agree with Jake, but it's gonna, get, as you sort of started out with this, Jason, the regulation is coming. And so for those people in the space who say like, no, you know, we're sticking with the cypherpunk ethos, just buck all regulation. That's not particularly realistic. Uh, and so I think engaging with regulators is real and policymakers is really important because if we don't, the banks will, and then this will become fintech. And that takes away some of the interest and fun and promise of what this technology can really bring. So we really need to be out there. And Jake has been doing this very proactively for a long time. Same with others, the DeFi Education Fund um, and, you know, other um, actual projects are getting involved in doing this too. And I've been sort of banging this drum for a while now. Be out there, give them ideas, because if you don't give them ideas, somebody else will, and it won't be ones that we can actually live with. Yeah. I guess like if you were to, in a perfect world, you can wave a wand. And I love Harry Potter. So like, let's use this analogy. Like, so you wave a wand. Where would you start? Like, what is there one particular idea of regulation that you would enact today that you've thought about? I'll, I'll give you my answer, and I, and and first the principle behind this answer, which is don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? Don't let the edge cases or the sort of nuanced complexities at the edges stop you from doing the easy things. And I think the easy thing here is to regulate the centralized custodial intermediaries in crypto where their business models are very similar to traditional financial institutions that are already regulated. So what I mean by that is the centralized exchanges that do take custody of customer funds, I think everyone at this point agrees that there should be some regulation there, right? Secondary markets in crypto are not regulated now. I think it's fair to say most digital assets are commodities, not securities. And commodities markets, at least spot markets, are not regulated in general, right? There's no regulation for gold spot markets or for wheat spot markets, right? Only for, for derivatives, which are regulated by the CFTC. 
I think that most people at this point understand that digital assets are at least different enough from physical commodities like gold or wheat or corn or what have you, that it makes sense to have some secondary market regulation. And I think the question is just who is the right regulator and what do those regulations look like? But if I had that magic wand, I think that's the first thing that I would do. And I think that that folks in Congress agree with me because we've seen these three bills that came out just this year that give the CFTC spot jurisdiction over crypto markets. And I think that's something we'll see happen within the next year or two. Rebecca, I'm, I'm really curious to get like when you make when some of this stuff gets more tangible. Um, uh, what, one of the things you said like 20 minutes ago or 15 minutes ago was was about censorship resistance being one of the one of the end goals here. And obviously the end goal is you build an amazing product that's better than existing products, but also censorship resistance if it's into the ethos of, of really where where we're going and what we're building here. How do you like maybe thinking more, I don't know how much you can talk about what Aave and the Aave companies are building, but and you can't, that's totally fine. But like when you guys are thinking about introducing a stable coin, uh, like if, if we look at Maker, for example, Maker is debating like, should we have USDC as collateral? Should real world assets be collateral? What that does, it makes it die, it makes die incredibly scalable, but it also means we're, uh, that, that Maker and die is more um, uh, exposed probably to regulatory risks and, and censorship. So how do you think about like, building an amazing product, scalable, but maybe you're more exposed to regulatory risks and censorship versus like only having cryptos collateral for the stable coin. Like, I'm just curious how you think through those problems. So I will talk generally how we think about problems because Stani's been very vocal about just how he thinks about building software and the things that are most important to him generally. I won't talk about any specific project or what we're doing, but um, Stani's number one priority is security. Uh, and and user security really. Um, so any time, and that some of that comes with censorship resistance. Some of that comes with ensuring that you build appropriately when things are still centralized and you don't necessarily have um, a DAO in charge. So you can even look at something like the Lens Protocol, which is a social media protocol. It's totally out of the DeFi realm of things, but even there, it's in beta. It's going through a gated launch to ensure that even at that level, uh, it's working as intended, especially because it's so novel. Um, and then we do a ton of security audits just to keep going on the security point for a while. Um, we obviously have the luxury of doing that because we are a larger company right now as we're building uh, and smaller companies may not have the luxury to do three, four, five, six, seven audits before they put out um, put out uh, software. But I think the point of that goes to Jake's point about how we're already regulated. Like there are certain things you need to do from a consumer protection perspective as you are building a product that applies to any company. And so security right there is the hallmark of it. Um, as far as censorship resistance, uh, we don't, um, you know, that's not sort of how we think about things from a first principles perspective. Obviously, Sony is very, very crypto native. Um, this is a very pulled itself up by the bootstraps, like not VC backed from day one company. Uh, and one of the reasons why I'm here is because Stani really can balance this idea of staying crypto native and true to the roots, but also thinking about consumer protection and really cares about building, like being a responsible innovator, right? As everybody sort of talks about, it's a hard line to walk, um, but we try to do both of those things as well. So stay true to what you know, whatever, what Web3 means or what everyone has intended from a decentralization ethos perspective while also really caring about user protection and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca, I also want to give you an opportunity to answer the question. If, if you have a wave of want, like uh, what, what specific piece of, if you're a regulator, like what would you do today? 
Um, that's tough because I spend a lot of my time thinking about where uh, the desire for regulators or policymakers to have some sort of regulation of DeFi come in uh, and how we can make that work without turning DeFi, without regulating speech and the writing of code and without turning software developers into financial intermediaries. But I don't think we can wave a wand there yet because I think it is so much more nuanced and there is more work to be done between both stakeholders. So this is why I always tell people, please engage, talk to policymakers, talk to regulators so they understand and so you can put your ideas out there. Um, Waving a wand I think what I'd like to see is as the stablecoin regulation is being built out and coming down in the U.S. to make sure that there are very nuanced distinctions between different types of stablecoins. So payment stablecoins that are centralized, um, stablecoins that are like DAI, over collateralized and decentralized, um, and then things that are much more truly algorithmic, right, like Ampleforth. and uh, any other types of categories. So I'd like to see nuance in any stablecoin regulation if I could wave a wand. How much, um, on this point, how much do regulators, do you feel regulators actually listen to you? Um, it depends, is my lawyer answer. Um, uh, I think I, I do a lot more. So in the U.S., I do a lot more engagement with policymakers, and they do listen. It depends on who you're talking to, what committee they're on, the time of day, what they're working on immediately versus not. So a lot of it is timing. That's just a human thing. Um, I do talk to regulators outside the United States a lot. Um, and in the UK, they care so much. I, I do like have- FCA the FCA, the HMT, um, they, there is a real push to see the UK as a global crypto hub. And they, they are, they want to do risk mitigation. They want to have, um, a good regulatory scheme, but they, they care deeply and have been engaging with stakeholders for years now to make sure they're building out something that's compatible with the technology and also protects consumers. That's largely my experience as well. I would say overwhelmingly, they listen because they're interested, right? I mean, they also want to know what's going on in this space and how they can do their jobs to address it. And most of them are well-meaning people, right? I think like we view regulators as this sort of separate category of being, but they're just people, right? They're just people with the same kinds of interests and, and um, you know, lives and concerns as, as the rest of us. I think there are a couple of exceptions and the exceptions are where you have regulators who are not focused on doing their jobs, but rather focused on some other separate interest. And I mean, it won't surprise you that, you know, uh, I'm thinking about the chair of the SEC here. I mean, there've been a lot of reports that um, Chair Gensler's political ambitions override his desire to regulate crypto in a way that actually makes sense. I think that's a real shame because there is a real opportunity for the SEC to be an important player in the future of crypto. And at this point, we just don't have an SEC that's open to those conversations. So it is sort of idiosyncratic in that sense. But I think the, the overwhelming majority are not like that. They're you know genuinely curious and they want to understand. Doesn't mean they're going to agree, but they do listen. Yeah. Totally agree there with you. In, in terms of the tor- going back just to tornado for a minute, it is as you said, it felt like it was more driven by that central figure, that head of the department that said, "Listen, guys, the staff may have thought otherwise, but they just said it's not going to happen." And so again, the risk of centralization um, and too much power in the individ- in the hands of one individual that wants to get ahead and place his interests above like consumer good, I guess. Um, but like, what is the hope and what is your view on 
the state of regulation today and like going forward, like I think we all feel that this space is going to be more regulated, probably accelerated by the recent kind of consumer losses and people getting hurt. Um, where do you see regulation coming? Um, and what can we do as an industry, particularly builders, founders in the space to get ahead of that and, and maybe influence that in a positive manner? This um, It's a great question. This gets directly back to the distinction Rebecca made earlier between regulators and policymakers. Specifically, what I mean is the elected officials in Congress and in the executive branch, right, the president and the people he appoints, uh, as opposed to the regulators. The, the issue with regulating crypto is that the laws on the books now just don't make a lot of sense, right? We have laws that are designed for an analog physical world, and we're trying to take those laws and then apply them to a digital blockchain-based space. does not make sense in most cases. What that means is we need Congress to make new laws. And a lot of the uncertainty and the trouble that we have now is regulators who have limited authority under existing law trying to stretch that authority as much as possible to apply it to crypto. But really, I think where the action is going to be is in Congress. And that's also where I think that the, you know, the listeners to this podcast can have the biggest influence. Unlike regulators, Elected officials are responsible to their constituencies. In other words, they want to do what gets them more votes. And that's where they need to listen to the people who are voting for them and listen to their interests. If there is sort of a changed American consciousness about crypto, that is what will influence Congress to pass new laws that are constructive for the space. That's a challenge right now, frankly, because crypto does not look very good to the American public. If you, you know, look at the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the Wall Street Journal half of the time, most of the stories are very negative. And I think what we need to do is, like Rebecca said, start telling telling these stories about the power of crypto and not just from a theoretical perspective, but from a real practical perspective. Where is this changing human lives? Where is this helping people to launch businesses they couldn't launch before or conduct activity they couldn't do in the traditional financial system? That's what's going to change the voters' perspective on crypto. And that's what's going to change the policymakers' view on crypto and set us up for, for good legislation in the future. Yeah, totally, Rebecca. I mean, I agree with, I, I do, sorry, come up with a question where we're going to diverge, but I, I do agree on, I do agree with everything that um, Jake said. The, the stories and the education are the most important thing everyone can be doing. And there are really important um, policy uh, groups out there and um, industry associations like the Blockchain Association. But I will say when you come from a builder, right, an actual software developer, and you have the real stories of how your software has worked, has touched people and the like, it, it makes an impact. I always tell this story that I have of somebody I know who used uh, the Ave protocol um, to um, supply certain crypto assets, borrow USDC, USDC and convert it into fiat and then bought their refrigerator with it. And that always lands really well because people say like, isn't this just for speculation? And you know, that's all the things that we've heard about from a negative perspective. And when you have these real stories, and that's just a small one and one, but um, it really starts making this real as to how it can be, how the technology can be used going forward. So that's really important. And as I've sort of threaded through the entire part of this podcast, like, please come with your ideas um, mm -hmm. about one, how to be responsible innovators and where the regulation can appropriately intersect with the technology. Because if we don't come with ideas, as I said, they'll come up with their own and they won't be mm -hmm. ones that we want to live with. 
I want to transition a little bit to something you said, Jake, which is uh, most of these digital assets being deemed commodities. We saw recently Coinbase, um, the SEC go after a particular Coinbase uh, employee that was front running. I guess he had information around Coinbase being, you know, the exchange that it is, um, listing certain assets and him trading uh, and tipping a few of his friends or family members and profiting as a result of that, which is known as like, what is that, like the, the wire? Like it was charged with wire fraud, I guess. Um, yeah. I am curious how you interpret that in the context of, are they deeming these securities not commodities? They listed specifically lying tokens. Um, and what the implications of all of this um, is for for the industry? Yeah. Um, well, uh, also great question. Let me, let me separate this out into two different pieces. One is the insider trading allegations. And I, look, no one likes insider trading. That's not something that we should support, and we don't condone that in any way. Insider trading, by the way, like you said, does not require there to be a security involved. There's such thing as commodities insider trading. The charge that the Department of Justice uh, had in their indictment was not you know, securities fraud. It was wire fraud. So set that aside, right? No one here is, is looking to defend you know, insider trading where someone is taking advantage of confidential information to get an edge in the market. But the second and totally separate issue here is the SEC using this opportunity to accuse 10 different companies of violating the securities laws without actually charging or, or, or um, putting forward a claim in federal court against any of them. And this is something we've seen from the SEC a lot, right? This tactic of regulation by enforcement that they engage in, where instead of giving guidance to the industry to say, here's our view of the securities laws. Here's how we think that the Howey test should be interpreted in the crypto context. Here's how you can comply with our view of what the Howey test means. And then sort of you know helping the industry to comply. Instead, they make these pronouncements of policy in the form of enforcement actions, whether that's settlements or it's complaints that they file in federal court. And here, the complaint they filed in federal court didn't even give the people they are accusing the opportunity to respond. I, to me, this is just irresponsible. And I, I mean, that's um, maybe a, a strong word, but I think uh, we deserve better from, from an agency that uh, should indeed be helping everyone in the crypto space understand what their obligations might be under the securities laws. And instead, that's, that's not what we've seen so far. So look, I, I don't know how that case is going to play out, mm -hmm. but I think um, it's pretty obvious that the SEC is setting itself up. I think possibly very soon and maybe in the next four weeks before the end of the SEC's fiscal year for a broader attack on crypto. And it's sad to say, um, but I, I do think that this is the beginning, not the end of, uh, of their enforcement strategy. And, and what would that attack look like? Um, I, I, so I'm totally speculating here. So take this all with a, with a grain of salt. But if I were guessing, what I would say is um, we should take Chair Gensler at his word. There's often this, this tendency when you hear sort of um, big uh, pronouncements or, you know, tough talk from, uh, you know, either elected officials or appointed officials to sort of dismiss it. And I think that that does them an injustice. I think we should take him at his word. What he says is centralized exchanges should come in and register with the SEC. In fact, he says centralized and decentralized. He doesn't seem to understand the distinction between those two things. What he's saying is these entities, whatever 
they may be, are in violation of the Securities Exchange Act requirement to register as a national securities exchange or an alternative trading system. That's a violation of the securities laws. If you take him at his word, what that suggests is the SEC will file enforcement actions against those types of platforms. Now, who exactly that is, I don't know, but you could probably run through the list of the biggest US-based centralized exchanges and possibly even decentralized protocols. And you could imagine seeing an enforcement action against any or all of them, again, potentially very soon. So the SEC's fiscal year ends uh, at the end of September. Mm -hmm. They have a pretty consistent pattern of filing big enforcement actions right before the end of the fiscal year. And the reason for that is they have to put together their budget request for the next year. And they want to show that they did as much as possible, literally in the prior fiscal year. So it could be that in the next month or so, uh, we're going to see those types of enforcement actions from the SEC. And then just go down the list of other you know, market participants who you've heard Chair Gensler uh, you know, sort of uh, casting uh, aspersions about in his public statements, whether that's token issuers or venture capital firms or market makers. I mean, I, I, I know this sounds a bit grim, but I think any or all of those could be on the table. I don't have anything, you know, specific to add to the question of like, what are we going to see from the SEC? Because as Jake said, all of that is speculation. As to the SEC's um, complaints against Wahi in the, Coin, in the Coinbase case we were talking about, I do think there it's important, and a lot of this has been discussed, um, to make the distinction, as Jake made, between the DOJ's indictment, so right, criminal indictment for wire fraud. They, wire fraud does not have a requirement as to what the instrument is. So all wire fraud uh, really requires is that you've knowingly devised or intended to devise a scheme uh, to defraud or obtain money and property by means of like false pretenses. So that's all they are saying that happened there from the criminal perspective. And that seems like a fairly easy case. Frequently, when you have both competing criminal and civil cases, the civil case gets stayed in favor of the criminal case being completed. I am not aware of any, you know, stay being requested yet, but um, the timing on that, you know, may not have passed. Um, but the the other piece that Jake um, sort of alluded to but hasn't gotten into is. I don't know what the financial means are of any of the defendants in the SEC's case, but they're individuals and presumably not individuals who have significant means to defend a case. So it's possible that there could be a settlement um, like we've seen in a lot of these with these enforcement orders. And while it doesn't necessarily set precedent from a federal perspective to say that there was a settlement for securities fraud, um, uh, sorry, for insider trading on securities and that these nine tokens, then there's this implicit acknowledgement that they were securities, um, could be a really big problem from a precedent setting perspective, just, um, you know, in the SEC's ambit and potentially can be used, you know, in other ways as well. So if you brought in a Coinbase, right, to say, Coinbase, we think you are improperly allowing securities to be traded on your platform and they were brought into the case, Coinbase has significant means, just like we've seen with Ripple on to hire some of the best lawyers to really take the SEC to task, to think really critically. Um, and maybe, the, you know, this is not saying about anything about um, the lawyers that these defendants may have hired. I don't know anything about them. But obviously, there's there can be a difference in means in who you hire to defend yourself and the type of work they're doing. So not bringing in Coinbase or any of these other you know, companies that may have greater money to defend themselves obviously puts the SEC potentially on better footing. Yeah. 
there's another point to add here. That's all correct. But there's another point to add here, which is all of what we just discussed focuses on the enforcement context. That's not all the SEC is doing. So, I, I mean, I think uh, the SEC has sort of a two-pronged um, uh, approach to crypto. Uh, the first is enforcement. The second is rulemaking. So earlier this year, the SEC proposed two uh, rulemaking changes that would vastly expand the federal securities laws to apply to any number of crypto market participants. Right? So again, this is a, a federal agency trying to expand its own authority under existing law, even though that existing law is not really intended to expand that far. The first was to expand the definition of an exchange to apply to communication protocol systems, which is not even defined in the proposed rulemaking, but probably it captures all sorts of participants in the in the DeFi ecosystem, right? Front end operators, maybe uh, you know governance token holders, who knows who else. And the second was an expansion on the dealer rule, which would probably capture a bunch of of institutional firms that are acting as market makers in decentralized exchange protocols. Both of those rules are currently pending. The SEC says, at least on their agenda, that they will finalize that first rule, the exchange rule, this October. So that's coming up in you know just about two months now. And if that happens, I think the only thing that can result is is litigation. Uh, and you know, we at the Blockchain Association filed a comment letter explaining why we thought that that rulemaking would be unlawful as as. Um, outside the scope of the SEC's authority. Uh, we also at the DeFi Education Fund filed a similar letter. Many other participants, uh, you know, Paradigm and Coinbase and uh, the Crypto Council for Innovation. I mean, basically everyone in crypto filed one of these comment letters, like hundreds of pages on file explaining why this rulemaking would not only be a bad idea as a policy matter, but would, would you know, indeed violate the law. Um, I don't know that that will stop the SEC from adopting that rule. So it may be that before the end of the year, we will be in litigation against the SEC to challenge that rulemaking. So we'll just have to see how that plays out as well. Yeah, yeah definitely something to watch. Um, and it's really insightful that you know, around this fiscal year end of the SEC. Um, I guess if we could transition a bit over to, there's two topics that I want to cover, maybe three, time permitting, and we've got 30 minutes. One is the Uniswap fees, which and all kind of the implications, how you were interpreting that, um, particularly because people are voting on it, and so potentially liability there, what up this all means from the security context. The second one is kind of the censorship of e-validators. This is tied to like Tornado. We talked a little bit about that, um, but I, it's very topical given the merge that is happening, you know, imminently. And the third is kind of DAOs and generally kind of how you see that space. I don't know if you have a preference uh, about, I know Rebecca has a preference, but uh, Jason or Jake, uh, maybe we could start with Uniswap fee switch and how you see that, and then we can tackle the rest. Um, well, I guess, I mean, I can give you my thoughts on the mm -hmm. Uniswap fee switch, but I, what, um, I mean, what part of it is of, of most interest to you? Yeah, I mean, I... I I think there's a big conversation right now just in DeFi in general, which is uh, we've we've kind of taken the Web2 model of like subsidizing uh, users, right? So if you look at like Uber rides in Manhattan used to be five bucks, now they're 50 bucks. Uh, we've done something similar with DeFi, which is uh, we've kind of subsidized some of these, some of the fees. And now folks are saying, like I, I know Uniswap and many other protocols are saying, well, should we turn on the fee? Should we, should we basically turn on the fees and start capturing more and more of the revenue? Um and I think there's a conversation right now about what if, if Uniswap turns on the fee switch. Well, now you're basically now you have a secure now, or now you have a token that generates revenue and pulls revenue back to the token holders. Uh, so 
maybe by some definitions that could look like a security. So I think the first part of the question is probably like, do are we understanding the definition of a security right? And are folks who are writing Twitter threads about this on uh, threads on Twitter about this are are they correct or like are are folks misunderstanding this? Uh, well, I, well, I haven't seen the Twitter threads, so I won't speak to any particular analysis. I also, uh, I, I don't have an opinion about sort of the commercial decision, right, about whether it's the right thing or not um, to turn the fee switch on. But I guess just from the legal perspective, um, well, maybe now's a good time for my disclaimer. I'm a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. I don't represent anyone in the audience here. Nothing is intended as legal advice. Uh, if, you, if you have your own legal concerns, get your own lawyer. That having been said... I do not think, my personal opinion is, I do not think that turning on the fee switch somehow converts the token into a security. That doesn't make sense uh, as a matter of law. When you look at the securities laws, the question is not, does this financial instrument promise to go up in value or does it yield a dividend in some way? That is not the test for a security, right? There's a million different types of financial instruments that can go up in value, or even in theory, perhaps, that could throw off some type of dividend or cash flow that are not treated as securities. That is not the beginning and end of the analysis. The question is, are the holders of the instrument who are expecting profit, either in the form of increasing value or some other type of profit, a dividend, etc., do they expect that profit reasonably because of the essential efforts of others? In other words, are they looking to the issuer of the instrument to carry out ongoing managerial and entrepreneurial efforts without which they would not be able to reasonably expect profit? And I think if you look at something like Uniswap, turning on the fee switch does not create that type of securities-like dependence of the holder of the instrument on the initial creator of the instrument, right? If you expect to make money from holding the Uniswap governance token because the fee switch is on, it's because you think there's going to be an organic market for use of the Uniswap protocol that does not depend on some third party that should be making disclosures under the securities laws in order for you, the holder of the instrument, to understand the value of your investment. It may be a relevant fact if you were to be looking for some type of securities-like relationship. But I, I mean, I think, look, my honest opinion is I think people who have the Uniswap governance token are probably expecting profit anyway. It's not a relevant piece of the analysis as to whether the token is a security. The question is, why are they expecting profit? Is it because of the original creator of the asset or other reasons? And in my opinion, the answer is other reasons. So no, I don't think it's it's dispositive of the securities question. Yeah. And without wading into the, it, I agree with Jake's analysis, obviously. The one thing you did say, Jason, that we have to sort of distinguish is you said Uniswap is thinking about turning on the fee switch, but it's not Uniswap Labs, the company. It is users who are making proposals to the DAO to do it. So, you know, to Jake's point of, well, where is the expectation of profit coming from? The Uniswap protocol, no admin key, nobody, you know, able to make changes to the protocol or really to the token. Um, and then having to rely on the DAO uh, and now potentially the foundation, because as of today that we're recording it, uh, the vote by the Uniswap DAO to uh, create a foundation um, has also passed. So, you know, where is the expectation coming from? It's the users who are moving this forward, not, you know, the original software developer. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so if you were, I guess this is more of a business model question, but so you you two would not be concerned about, and Rebecca, I don't know how much you can comment on this, but you two would not be concerned about 
turning on the fee switch and and maybe the negative impacts that regulators that it could have on the regulatory side of things? Uh, no, I don't think I said that specifically, but I think Jake's point, and I don't want to put words in his mouth and mine yeah. too, are you have to look at the facts and circumstances, as everybody yeah. says, under a Howie to see and to do a real analysis um, of what that means from an efforts of others perspective. And this goes to, you know, your question about how do we define decentralization, you know, as far as let's say the Uniswap protocol goes, uh, certainly open sourced, um, even though there's a license on it as of now, uh, you know, diffuse governance. Uh, and then you have to look at the ecosystem and where it's really coming from to look at the different pieces of the facts and circumstances around decentralization and the efforts of others. That That's well said. I, I wouldn't go quite so far as to be totally unconcerned, but I just, I think it's one fact of many and it wouldn't be, uh, you know, the, a dispositive factor in that analysis. I don't think, in other words, that the Uniswap governance token is not a security before the fee switch gets turned on and then automatically a security just because it is. Um, so yeah, that's my my take on it. What's really important just for this conversation um, is to go back and look at the Coinbase uh, complaint that we were just talking about, the insider trading one, um, because they focus so much on the efforts of others prong when they are talking about the nine different tokens and how they're deciding that those are securities. So that's really the key when you are thinking about this analysis. Um, and I, the Coinbase complaint is a great place to learn um, whether and what the SEC thinks is important in the efforts of others analysis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess transitioning a bit to the validators, um, I guess really curious to get your take on you know, as we all know, Ethereum is transitioning to proof of stake, uh, you know, September of 16th, merge, um, given the recent kind of tornado, um, imp, you know, enforcement and the actions that other protocols have had to take, Jake, Rebecca, you both alluded to this earlier, which is this kind of uh, enabling of an enemy of the state if you're validating blocks that have, you know, funds that are, you know, tied to North Korea or some enemy of the state and what that means for for the network, what that means for people that are validating like centralized institutions, decentralized institutions like Lido um, and exchanges like Coinbase. I mean, it's fairly concentrated set um, of folks that have these deposits and perhaps a validator set. Um, so I am curious how you are interpreting this and thinking about it um, generally for, for Ethereum and then just proof of stake networks that are, I guess, to set the precedent, and this is my understanding, you correct me here, but unlike Bitcoin, which is deterministic, if you're a miner, you're competing to solve and, and broadcast the answer to the puzzle. And then there continues to be like these kind of multiple chains, if you will. And then the truth and sort of is agreed upon, but it's probabilistic. Whereas if you're a validator, you may have some, there, there's nuance to this, but in a simplistic manner for the sake of time is, you get sort of chosen to put a rubber stamp on and validate that particular block. And, and so it's different than from a miner in the sense that you can trace back a particular block um, approval, if you will, that can be contested by the validators, but approval to a particular entity, if you will. So that I think is an important distinction between a proof of work network. Well, no, the ultimate question is like, do we think they should be uh, blocking sanctioned transactions? You know what? What's the ultimate question? <laughs> I don't really know what the question is. Uh, the question is like, if you're a validator, I, I, yeah. like, I mean, all of us are thinking, looking at this, and saying, "What's going to happen?" We're all excited about the merge, yeah. I mean, but again, it's like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Isn't, uh, isn't the big isn't the big question right now is like there are 
there are a couple major validators, right? And the question is like, do they adhere, do they, should they adhere to OFAC regulations, right? Like if a regulator comes to you and you are Kraken or staked or Coinbase or Lido, uh, and they ask you to censor at the Ethereum protocol level, uh, with your validators, do you a comply and censor at the protocol level or B, do you kind of shut down the staking service and pre- preserve network integrity to not be, you know, the censored Ethereum blockchain, um, but you sacrifice all the revenue that you generate. I, th- I think that's the the question at hand here. Yeah. More fun, philosophically, fundamentally, does that compromise the network full stop? Because then who's going to be validating? Well, it's people that are only don't care about complying with the, you know, developed nation like regulators, which right. I don't know. I'm not sure. Jake, what we we'll, Jake, we'll throw this one to you first and see. We'll kick it off. Yeah. Well, there's a third option, right? Which is which is to validate the block and have a legal argument as to why that is permissible under the sanctions laws. That's very risky. And I think that's maybe where I'll start here. And, and again, right? Not your lawyer, not trying to give legal advice to Coinbase or anybody who's you know um, ha- providing staking as a service or anything like that. But look, sanctions laws are extremely broad. What they say is, if you are a U.S. person, you cannot transact with an address that has been listed on the SDM list. And also, you cannot facilitate any other transactions with that address. Like Rebecca said, providing material assistance. So I I think there's a couple of questions that if I'm outside counsel for Coinbase, I'm, I'm thinking through and advising them on right now. One is, are you facilitating a transaction that violates sanctions laws if you validate a block that contains a transaction with a sanctioned address. The second question is, if you are validating a a block that builds on top of a state that includes sanctioned transactions in the last block or sometime before, are you violating sanctions? Or do you in fact have to try to reorg the entire chain just to avoid, right, to sort of remove all of those sanctioned transactions? Um, Those are both really hard questions, but the problem is if you violate sanctions laws, it's a criminal offense. And so most compliance lawyers are going to give very conservative, very risk-averse advice, and they're going to say, don't mess with this. If you're clearly subject to U.S. jurisdiction, don't be playing around with sanctioned transactions. I'm sure that that is the advice that Circle got when they decided to freeze USDC in Tornado Cash. Very interestingly, we saw yesterday Tether say they do not agree, and they did not uh, decide to freeze USDT in Tornado Cash. I don't know exactly what their argument is, but I'm guessing their argument is we don't actually control these transactions. So we're not facilitating sanctioned transactions just by allowing Tether to continue to exist in Tornado Cash. Maybe validators could make a similar type of argument. I don't know. But I think you have to assume if you're thinking about this from a game theoretic perspective, trying to understand what is the security offered by proof of stake under you know the current sort of market structure for Ethereum. I think you have to assume that a U.S. person, right, a company that is organized and headquartered in the United States is not going to directly facilitate any transaction that could be viewed as violating the sanctions laws. Um, So, yes, I I think you have to assume that uh, a U.S. staking service is going to censor those transactions. That's that's very likely what would happen. But it does compromise the security of the network and and for the way it's intended to work, right, to to what you're bringing it back to. I mean, I think even outside the sanctions context, we've seen a lot of discussion now about some of the new either alt ones or layer twos and how many nodes do they have, how many validators do they have, and if 
there are the fewer um, that there are, maybe it's less secure. So, or, or certainly, and it's certainly less censorship resistant. So, um, you know, that's part of the the whole discussion as well. But I guess it also depends on what you mean by security. But I think you know, if you have people stopping validating transactions, um, yeah. it, it does make it less Sounds, secure. Yeah. So yeah. I'll tell you because I was running a, um, I was thinking of setting up uh, seeking a service um, way back in the, and I reached out to actually a chair of the SEC. We went in a meeting in San Francisco and talked about this. I this was the main issue that I had, which is, and I asked them the question: Look, what happens if North Korea delegates? At the time, it was like Tezos over to my validator. I can't stop that actor from delegating their assets to my del- like to my validator. I guess. And so they were like, kind of like, I don't know if they were not as focused on that, but the FCA kind of, we also reached out to the FCA and they were like, fine with it. Now, of course it, it's different now, I guess, because of tornado, I, I guess. But <clears throat> I think what is key if I were architecting a network was there are certain proof of stake networks where the validator can block the payment of the reward to the delegators. So if I'm the validator in certain networks, I can't control the payout. It's I deploy the smart con like I deploy the contract and I pay out um, the reward to delegates. And in some networks, you can actually withhold the payment until they KYC, until they AML, until they whatever. So you block it. And I think to me that feels like the regulatory compliant way to do proof of stake, which is anyone can validate to your to your validator, but the validator can have some discretion, at least, I don't want to say having custody, but blocking the payment if, only if, that particular address has been in the list. And you can do a check really easily. And if it's on the list, then that person doesn't get paid. And so you at least are not, <laughs> at least that particular entity is not like profiting from the service. But anyways. Yeah, but there's the nuance, right? Which is, are you on the list or are you trying to, trans- right, with no Tornado Cash now, it's not, is your wallet on the list? Are you transacting with a smart contract that is on the list? So it's, it, there is that nuance. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, to your point, right, it's different, um, but it's also the same, right? It's like the same, but different, but same in the sense that Bitcoin miners have had to think about avoiding sanctioned Bitcoin addresses for at least the last four years when the first Bitcoin addresses were added to the list. And they've sort of come up, I think, with an industry standard, which is they don't include those transactions in their own blocks, but they do not have any problem building on top of a prior block that does include those transactions. And so it may be that those transactions just get validated by non-US persons, and then the US persons, I mean, this doesn't solve some of the um, sort of stickier questions like the delegation issue you mentioned, but I think, you know, we develop industry standards around these things, hopefully in coordination with regulators. And the last thing I'll say is, um, this is where we have to ask this question, what is in the hearts and minds of the folks over at OFAC and in the Treasury Department? Is it their goal to take down Ethereum or are they really just trying to exclude North Korea from having access to this one tool that was being used quite a lot by the Lazarus group? And honestly, I'm going to be optimistic and say, I think it's the latter. I do not think that this is an attempt to undermine the security of the Ethereum blockchain broadly. And these are the kinds of questions we should ask them and have them explain, look, here's what we expect you to do. And here's where it's going to be okay. And just like they're 
seemingly fine with miners who are building on top of blocks that have sanctioned transactions in them. Hopefully we can work out some kind of understanding where we're satisfying, again, the very valid concerns that they have about bad actors mm-hmm. abusing this system while also not undermining the security of the blockchain itself. That's that's my hope. There's actually a really important point that Jake made baked into there that we haven't talked about here, but is important for, I think, the, the ecosystem to take away, which is it... I acknowledge this does feel like an existential threat in some way, right, to see the sanctioning of actual software. But I do not think OFAC or any regulator or policymaker in the United States wants to, well, I can't say none, but I I don't think that there is an intention to shut down this innovation in full. And so while there has been a large outcry against what was done and how unprecedented it is and stuff like that. We have to remember that as Jake sort of started this podcast off with, this was a national security issue. This is how they thought they could best address it. Um, And while it is new and novel, I don't think it means that OFAC is going to go around and try to shut down every single DeFi protocol that's out there. Yeah. Are we going, maybe I know we're coming up on time here and I want to just make sure we're respectful of your guys' time. We're back on Jake. Are we going the way of, will there be permissioned DeFi and permissionless DeFi? Will there be maybe even at a deeper level? Like, could you see a permissioned ETH chain and an, like a censored ETH chain and a non-censored ETH chain? Is, is that where the space is heading? I, I hope not, honestly. Um, I, I hope that there is a way that we can find an intermediary position where we have one DeFi that holds true to a lot of the principles here, especially something like, you know, um, having the permissionless nature, right, and not bringing it back to the old antiquated KYC that we do under the Bank Secrecy Act that excludes, as we know now, 1.7 billion people across the world from the financial system. So we can keep the possibility and the promise that this technology holds uh, while also bringing in some of the compliance, user protection, anti-fraud, anti-money laundering, things like that, all the regulatory goals we have. But I hope there are not two systems. I really I really am hopeful that if if we work hard enough, that we can find some compromise. And I'll admit that won't make everyone happy anyway. So for everybody on Twitter right now, I know people hate that answer, um, but I do not want to see two systems. I think um, I think the beauty of crypto is that everything will be tried, right? I mean, that that's the nature of crypto. It is permissionless. Someone is going to show up to try everything you can imagine, including permissioned DeFi, even though to me, that's sort of an oxymoron. I don't think you can be decentralized and permissioned at the same time. But I think, again, the beauty of it is uh, everything will be tried and the market will decide what wins. And in my mind, open source always wins, right? The, The more neutral, the more open and inclusive and accessible version will win out over the permission version. I, I think we have decades of history from before crypto that that shows that the market forces tend to select the open source version over the proprietary one. And I don't see why it would be any different here. So yes, I do think we'll hear a lot of discussion about how do we permission these protocols to make them safer or what have you. But I think ultimately, uh, that's not where we're going. I think we will end up with at least something that approximates this this decentralized, uh, permissionless, inclusive world that we're all trying to build here. Yeah. Yeah. I think the key takeaways have always been, if you're a founder, focus on consumer protection, have incredible immutable code, and working towards decentralization without compromising the security, it's a fine balance. But I think like in my assessment, regulators really, really hate it when consumer consumers are hurt. 
And, and so if you build with that in mind and with that intention, you know, all you can really do otherwise is focus on helping you guys out that are at the forefront talking to these folks that I think from what I've heard in this podcast is that they are receptive. They are, they care, they are paying attention and they want to, they kind of want to do the right thing. They want to regulate it sensibly because it is a big economic impact and their constituents are care about it and increasingly so. So I think, uh, you know, um, that's the hopeful, optimistic side of all of this. Uh, so we, we'll, we'll probably have to have you guys on. Well, we'll see if uh, Jake's uh, theory that the SEC comes out with a you know broad-based attack in the next couple of months, if that's the case. We'll have to have you on and discuss that. You guys uh, always put out really good content uh, on Twitter for everyone. Uh, and of course, none of this is legal or financial advice, and they're not your lawyers, but still, uh, you should go follow them on Twitter because they, they are at the forefront and they're I will just say thank, thanks for uh, fighting a good fight, Jake and Rebecca. This is, uh, yeah, I think a lot of folks don't see the work that you guys are doing behind the scenes. And it's, um, yeah. Uh, and by yeah. the way, like the, the fight is not so much like it is with a regulator to some extent, but it's also with the media. I think the media does probably more damage than like regulators. We always keep talking about that with the fights with regulators. The fights like <laughs> Fortune and Financial Times, all the idiots that are like just like want to sell news and are projecting this industry as, a, like, yeah. you know, evil. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, earlier this week, the New York Times put out a request for whistleblowers in the crypto space and yeah. who's seen something bad. So your point, your I, I point stands, at, Santi. I looked at the last 50 pieces the New York Times have wrote have, have written about crypto and 40 not – or no, I think it was all 50. 50 out of 50 were all bad. I was like, this is remarkable. So, yeah. but, Well, I was just going to say, but to that point, you guys deserve a huge amount of credit at BlockWorks, right? I think you guys are the solution to that problem. You are targeting that same audience and you're doing a phenomenal job. I don't think you're biased in any way. I think you – tell it like it is. But I mean, having that sort of, you know, credible, but unbiased reporting, I think is hugely important. So thank you guys for all the work you're doing. And thanks for having us on. Yeah, appreciate it, Jake. Any parting thoughts, guys, before we go? I think the last part um, that the last point that you guys made is important that like, we need to stay optimistic, right? Um, that we can't take what's going on in the media and tornado cash and that regulation is coming and that institutions want to co-op some of this technology, those kinds of things that there's a lot of bombardment on that um, these days. If you really believe in the technology, stay optimistic that there is a path forward to see the technology bring a lot of the promise, maybe not in exactly the way that you had hoped uh, or the way that we all envisioned it when we got involved five, six, 10 years ago, whenever you got involved. Um, but that there's a path forward that will hopefully let this technology bring uh, all the things we hope it will. It's a great well, unfortunately, we did not yeah. find anything to disagree about today. Yeah, next time uh, we'll, we'll find something to uh, fight about. But yeah. no, look, I, I think my parting thought is uh, you know, if anyone is coming away from this conversation feeling concerned or scared about the future of, uh, you know, the regulatory impact on crypto, I would say don't. I'm not worried about any of this. Yes, there's some rough waters ahead. It might get worse before it gets better. But I am still exactly as confident in the future of crypto as I've ever been. And so I think for people out there, the, the only thing I would say is if you want to contribute, just keep building. Because the more you build yeah. and the cooler this stuff is and the more it gets used, the faster we're going to get to a good outcome on the other side of, of whatever trouble is ahead. So um, have no fear and uh, yeah, keep moving forward. It's an amazing place to end. Open source always wins. Keep building. Have no fear and stay optimistic. I can't think of a better ending than that. Jake, Rebecca, thank you guys. Santi, thank you for leading this conversation. This was fun. I got to sit back and <laughs> enjoy this. This was a lot of fun. I've known these two folks for a long time and I'll definitely sleep better tonight. So thank you for coming <laughs> on. <laughs> 
And uh, let's not sing much on the Super Bowl. But anyways, thank you for coming out. <laughs> Love to have you soon. Uh, and yeah, we really All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, guys.